0: Welcome to the Wealth Builders Podcast. I'm Billy Epperhart, and on this show, you're going to hear from industry leaders in business, real estate, and investing. Our Wealth Builder coaches and myself are excited to teach you how to make sense of making money for making a difference. Okay, let's get started.
1: Well, hello, and welcome to this week's Wealth Builders Podcast. I'm Karen Conrad, Vice President of Wealth Builders, which you all know if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time. And I've got two very special guests with me today. I've got two of our real estate coaches, Troy Peterson and Frank Pulley. Troy, do you want to say hi to everybody?
2: Hey, everybody. Glad you could join us today. I'm looking forward to sharing some good stuff with you.
1: And Frank.
0: Welcome everybody. We're excited that you're with us and we're hoping to answer a few questions today that you may have.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. The topic for today is real estate. Of course, I've got our real estate coaches on, Uh, but we just recorded a webinar, a live webinar with Billy, which was excellent. He went over um, information on the market. And if you missed it, I just want you to know you can go out on our YouTube channel, uh, Billy Epperhart's YouTube channel, and you can watch that webinar. There's a lot of great information. And we had so many questions, which I anticipated because I had you guys scheduled for this. And so what we're gonna do today is we're gonna go through questions uh, from all of you, our audience that were submitted during the webinar and answer as many of those as possible. And we are of course leading up to our October real estate workshop And I want to encourage you guys, uh, you know, if you haven't signed up yet, you really, if you're interested in real estate, this really is going to be a good workshop for you to attend. Billy talked a lot on that webinar about it's coming, right? What he's been talking about, meaning the prices are starting to drop and there's no better time to get like knowledge, to get understanding, um, to really get ready. So when that opportunity arrives, that you are ready to get in the game. So if you want to attend that, I've actually got a a code for you. Go to wealthbuilders.org forward slash events, and then you can use the code WB200, which will give you $200 off that workshop and the best experiences to come in person. We get to see you and you get to spend time with others, but the live stream is a great option as well. All right, guys, are you ready to get started?
2: Yes, let's go.
1: Sort of like a speed round here of real estate questions. So the first question is from Janelle. And um, one of the things she's referencing here, she says, how do you find this information? Billy showed a report of various markets and it listed some of the Prices that seem to be overpriced as to where they should be. And so Janelle was wondering where to find that information on the value of the property. Wondering about Zillow. Can you trust the numbers from Zillow? And just wondering about overall averages for a specific area. How do you find that information? And so, Troy, I'm going to start with you on that one. Um, What would you say to Janelle and our listeners on how to get that information?
2: Well, Janelle, first of all, kudos to you for wanting to take time to dive into the data. That's one of the most important things any successful real estate investor could know. How do I find the value? Which way is my market going? The cool thing about real estate is you can project it about six months in advance uh, where a stock market could move in six seconds. So that makes real estate very nice to be able to look at. Now, when you're looking for data like this, we tend to look at a lot of different sources. You can look at Zillow, but never trust the Zestimate. The Zestimate's either right on or way off, and you never know which one unless you do additional research. With Zillow, you can pull down some additional market reports, Uh, You can also go to Realtor.com, and Realtor.com has some great heat maps that they use that will give you an idea of days on market, uh, average selling price, what's going on, and you can start to search county by county. Now, one of the graphs that Billy happened to pull up uh, as he was referencing in that webinar was from the Florida Atlantic FAU, so Florida Atlantic University College of Business, and he was referencing the top 100 US housing markets and referencing their value. And we're specifically looking at what was overvalued. So that's one of the data sources that you pull in, but there really is a few different places. And don't let it overwhelm you because once you can know what to look at, you could do your research in about 10 minutes a week and know pretty much what's going
0: on. So that was a great question.
1: That's awesome. Troy, Frank, do you have anything to add to that?
0: Just really quickly. Also look at median price rather than average sometimes um estimates on zillow can be spot on but they can be way off one thing i like to do if i'm looking if a market is appreciating or depreciating is go back and you do this on any of the websites that troy mentioned you can look at what was actually sold versus what's listed now and if the listings are lower we're going into a depreciating market if they're higher we're going into an appreciating market
1: Oh, that's a really good point. Gosh, guys, great information. Thank you. All right. We've got a question here from Kevin. And Kevin says, if I have $25,000 in the stock market, would it be better to put that towards buying a rental property and earn rental income versus keeping it in the stock market? Frank, I'll go to you first on this one.
0: Well, we were actually talking about this a little bit before we started the uh, podcast, but you know, I mean, we all agree you should diversify your, you know, portfolio. In my situation, though, I mean, if I knew a stock was going to continually pay me every month a set amount or even more, I, you know, I might think about it. But a rental property is going to do that if you buy it right and you rent it right.
1: Awesome. Troy? Troy?
2: Yeah, Frank's absolutely correct. And Frank, I really expect you to give uh, Bill Bronchick's lawyer answer. It depends.
0: depends. <laughs> well, I should have. Huh?
2: <laughs> Every situation's a little different. It's hard it to is. say if that 25 k is good in a stock or in real estate. Now, as you can imagine, I'm pretty partial to rental property because I know that performs in any market. And it does. As Frank said, rental property gives you income every month that somebody lives there and pays rent. So it's really kind of a personal decision and you might seek some really good counsel as to what's best for you to do with that 25,000. If you need it liquid and you put it in a rental property, then forget it. But if you need it liquid and it's in stock, you could be earning something. So you need to really look at your situation and then figure out what's gonna be best for you.
1: Awesome, all right, you guys. Next one here is from Sandra. And during the webinar, we actually talked about new construction a bit. And her question is, how do you feel about a small new build development for entry level buyers where banks support, uh, they support the mortgage funding for this market segment? She said we'd need land, of course, and wondering what our thoughts are about land acquisition pricing And any correction from market conditions being discussed? Now, there's like three questions in there, guys. Uh, But Troy, let's start with you on this one.
2: All right. Yeah, that is a loaded question. And there's a lot to consider in this. Uh, first thing that you really want to understand is whenever you're looking at your real estate market, it's a local market. So what might be going on in your city might not work in the next county over. So you need to, if you're going to be looking at building, you need to gauge what is the real demand that's happening. Because if builders are overbuilding in your area, you don't want to start building right now at the top of the cycle. You'd want to wait till the, till the cycle recovers. So you got to know your market. Uh, from there... If you do have the good demand or you find an area with demand, finding land, that really is the key. You've got to find land. You've got to calculate your utilities cost, what they call the offsite improvements, so the zoning, the platting. And I don't mean it to sound more complicated than it is. It's really just a step-by-step process. It can take some time. So you really just need to know if your market's going to support the demand and be able to build out from there. All that being said, it can be a wonderful opportunity. Now, if you're not really ready to go develop a small segment, then you might look for individual builders and try one at a time. You can even look in some of these homes in the existing communities where builders are building spec homes. They offer the sweet financing, and that could be a really good opportunity to get in some cash flow without having to do all
0: the other stuff that you would do if you're going to do a small subdivision.
1: Awesome. Frank?
0: Well, that was a great answer, Troy. Um, the only thing I would add is, um, first of all, make sure you, uh, you've you got all your costs covered. It usually takes longer and costs more than you uh, originally thought.
1: That's great, guys. Thank you. Well, we've got two questions on cash out refis. One of them is from David Armstrong, who is a coaching client uh, through Wealth Builder. Mm-hmm. So, David, we appreciate you and, and your question. And um, let's start with that one, and then I'll pop to Lynette, who's also on that topic. David said that he's been told by two mortgage bankers that cash-out refis are going away. Do you you guys have any information on that?
2: I, I don't see them going away. I do see credit markets starting to tighten. I do see them looking hard at criteria, and I see some lenders changing what they will give out. I just did a small cash out refi on one of my refinance or one of my properties. I had to refinance it out of a private loan into a 30 year fix because I converted it to a rental. I got a little bit of cash out at closing. They took me to 80 percent. No problem. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that it won't become a problem as credit markets tighten. But as of right now, there's still plenty of cash available
0: out there in the market.
1: That's great. Frank, have you heard anything about this?
0: Other than the fact that they're just tightening up, I think we just have to kind of follow what's going on in the market. Uh, I know that when they, uh, if a lender will cash you out at 80%, 80%, they're going to possibly do an appraisal to make sure they're right at that or below because uh, they're, you know, again, they're getting a lot stricter.
1: Yeah, that's really good. And Lynette is um, continuing with the cash out <laughs> refi theme. And she's got a little bit of a different question. She says, "Generally speaking, would it be a bad move to do a cash out refi on my primary now in order to use the cash to make needed improvements uh, on her primary and rentals, knowing that she will refi again when rates go down?" What do you guys think about that? I'll start with you, Frank.
0: Well. I mean, to do a total cash out refi, you're going to be paying up some exorbitant interest rates versus what you probably have right now. Mm -hmm. I would try and get a couple of HELOCs and, you know, they're a little more expensive than the going rate, but you still preserve that first lien low mortgage rate.
1: Yeah, that's that's great. I think we should talk about HELOCs a bit as well, Uh, but I want to get your thoughts on that, Troy, as well.
2: I tend to agree with Frank. I think a HELOC would be better in that situation. If you did a full-on cash-out refi at today's higher rates, that puts you in a situation where now you have to pay uh, an interest rate on that money you took out. But if you did a HELOC, that's money that's available, but it can be sitting there at zero cost if you don't actually use it. That way, you've got dry powder to be able to do battle with, but you don't have the cost of holding it. So Frank, great suggestion on the HELOC.
1: Thank yeah, you. I'm wondering, Appreciate too, it. with HELOCs, you know, just on the tightening of credit markets and Billy actually showed a slide on that as well. Um, what are you guys seeing with HELOCs? Our uh, banks, you know, banks have to lend somewhere because they have to place the money. They're paying out money on deposits and, and it seems like HELOCs might be a great way to go. But are you seeing that same tightening happen in that market?
0: It is on our market uh, in Colorado, um, but you know it's uh, it could be local from uh, from place to place. But I you know I think banks are getting a little tighter even on HELOCs. But it's still a good way to go. And as Troy mentioned, you don't really pay for it unless you use it, and then you always got to figure out a way you're going to pay it back fairly quickly.
1: Yeah, that's great, guys. Okay, this is a question we get. It seems like uh, no matter what the environment is, and so let's just let's just hit this head on because it's a really great question. It's from Kevin, and he says, "Do you recommend waiting till spring or summer to buy?" And I'll go right back to you, uh, Frank, on this one.
0: Well, it depends. I have actually made my some. A lawyer my, answer. I have made my best deals during the holidays. People seem to be more motivated then. I mean, realtors know, and you know, the sweet season, as Billy said last night, is from the Super Bowl through you know maybe uh, first of November or so. If you're looking for deals, I have made my best deals. I mean, multiple deals in a, in a month. Um, good deals in the month of December.
1: Do you know, Frank, we have two because the market's kind of sleepy, people are thinking about the holidays, and um, people want to get rid of their homes on the market by the end of the year, or at least have a contract on it. Uh, Troy, how would you answer this question?
2: I would agree with what you're both saying. The last quarter of the year really is the best time to buy. People that are tending to sell their homes during the holiday season are generally more motivated. If a bank happens to have a home, they wanna get it off the books before the end of the year. So it really is the best time to buy. Now, I would say it's never a good time to wait because I know people that went waiting since 2016 for the market to go down and that just hasn't happened. So you don't wanna wait and miss a deal. You need to always be ready to go look for a deal, always be on the hunt, but always make sure that the deal works. Because I don't care which way the market's going, if you've got a deal, then let's get the deal done. The market doesn't determine the deal, the deal determines the deal. So that I, I wouldn't wait, I would be jumping in and looking right now.
0: If you're buying something low price in December too, and you're rehabbing it, a lot of times that puts you in the sweet spring market, Where you can get a little higher price. That's a great point, Frank.
1: That is a really good point. And, you know, one of the things we cover, we'll cover this in the workshop. We definitely cover it also in the real estate masterclass, which I'll tell you all about at the end of the podcast. Um, But in coaching, too, we really work with the coaching clients when they have deals and potential deals. We analyze that, you know, frontwards, backwards, sideways, every angle. And um, it's not so much the, you know, you can't, in my opinion, you can't say, okay, I'm going to start buying in April because I'll find a good deal in April. You really just have to know your numbers, right? You look at trends, like we know we're going into a time that's probably a good time to buy. And if your numbers work, then it it doesn't really matter the perfect timing, but you know what you're looking for, whether it's now or whether it's in the future. And another thing just to keep in mind with this is that if the um, balance or the the prices, and it's more widely known that we're going into a softening period, the investors are going to become very crowded in this arena. So one of the things that I would suggest is that you figure out where it works for you, looking at all the things that we've talked about, analyze it, and then go in. It doesn't mean that you have to buy it for what they're asking for, This is a good time to deal because people's heads, sellers heads are still where prices were, you know, a year and two years ago. And they're starting to realize that they might not be able to get those their homes sold for that price and they're starting to drop. So negotiation without it being, you know, a sea of investors, I think we're going into that sweet spot or might be in that sweet spot for some people right now, some markets. All right. This is uh, from Natasha. And she says, would you still recommend taking a variable rate over a fixed rate if applying for a HELOC in this current economic environment? Troy, do you want to start us out on that one?
2: That That is the lawyer question. It depends. <laughs> yeah. Which one's going to give you the best terms? What is your financial situation? If you're going to start using a, a HELOC by nature is a uh, is a variable rate. There are fixed rate HELOCs out there, but a lot of HELOCs are tied to the prime plus. So they're, they are kind of variable rate, just like a credit card. But Natasha, remember there's one thing that's vitally important with a HELOC is it's just like a credit card. If you've got a $50,000 line on a HELOC and you owe zero, it doesn't matter what the rate is, you're going to pay zero for it. You're only going to pay when you use it. So Really, you get the best terms, you get as much liquid as you can, and you probably go with that. But you need to consider your financial position and what it would do to your cash flow personally, too, at whatever
0: rate that you're locking in at.
1: That's great. Frank, anything to add to that?
0: No, that was a great answer, Troy.
1: All right. All right. This is a a really good question from Xenia. And in this, guys, I'm going to ask that you explain a little bit what these terms mean. And Frank, I'll be starting with you on this one. The question is, is it a good time to buy by owner carry contract or sub to
0: Yes. Actually, any a good time. If you can get terms, I will pay a higher price for a property if I can get good terms on it. That being said, um, this is a great time to do Let's talk about sub two. I means subject to the existing mortgage. And uh, what that means is, if you find somebody that has a low payment and a bit of equity, you can pay them for not necessarily 100% of their equity, but you take over their payments. And then you have a Card blanche to do pretty much anything you want to. You can rent it out, you can rehab it. That's the cheapest rehab loan you're ever gonna get. Um, you can sell it. I mean, there, there's a ton of different things that you can do with it. So that's one way. Troy, I'll throw the other owner carry stuff at you. Well, it it works pretty much
2: the same way as a sub two. Any type you got to own or carry, it really comes down to what's your cash flow. And if you can cash flow it at a rate that's higher than your monthly cost, then yes, it's a good time to get into one of those deals. And as Frank said, it's always a good time. If you've got good terms, you jump into one of those
0: deals just as long as it cash flows. Yeah. One of the things I'm going to add is about one third of properties in the United States are... Uh, 100% owned by the owner, 100% lock, stock and barrel. A good technique on that, if the uh, sellers are not desperate for money, is to go out and get a a 70 to 80% loan on that property and then have them carry in second position the the other 20 or 30%. That gives them a continuing stream of of income and not only do they make some money on the sale, but if you've looked at an amortization schedule lately, that really gives them some uh, some good profit. But it's good for you, too.
1: Yeah, that's good. How difficult is it right now to be able to uh, find an owner carried? And I'll start with Troy.
2: You know, it's really not that difficult it, uh If you're out there looking and you're talking to people, they just happen. And unbelievable things happen. I I did an owner carry deal last year that just landed in my lap. The guy says, I want $7,500 down. I want $1,300 a month and I'll apply a $1,200 of that to principal. And I kind of scratched my head and says, "Um, why? And, And then I decided not to ask that question and just told him I would do the deal. And uh, I handed it to my attorney who actually drew up the documents on this and it came out to a little less than 1% interest. (laughs) And the beautiful thing was the property had $50,000 in equity. He just was interested and he didn't want to rent. He wanted cash flow. So I like people like that, tired landlords. They have the desire for income, but not the desire to manage the tenants. That becomes a great place to be able to look for those kinds of deals.
1: That's really cool. And um, Frank, can you talk a bit about the tax advantages of an owner carry in a situation like Troy just described?
0: Well, yeah, if somebody just sells their property outright. Now, it's a little different with a a primary resident versus a uh, an investor property. Let's just talk about investment real quick. I mean, you're going to have long term capital gains and you can pay uh, up to 30, maybe more percent of that profit away, uh, just just the good old US of A, Uncle Sam, versus if you're carrying the papers, you're only paying for what you're getting in that particular year. But the best part is you can almost double or triple what you're gonna make on that house or that property just in the uh, amortization over the several years and you've got a continuing flow of income.
1: Wow, that's really good. Thanks so much. All right. This is a question from Ina. And uh, we were talking about this. We were talking about DSCR loans and DTI. Um, but Troy, I'm going to start with you. Can you explain what a DSCR loan is and when somebody would want to you know, look into using that type of a loan?
2: Absolutely. Now, a DSCR loan is if you've never bought an investment property, you're probably not gonna start off with a DSCR. But after you've done a couple, you switch to a DSCR. It's more of a commercial type project product. They tend to do it in the name of your entity more than your personal name. And DSCR is an acronym. It stands for Debt Service Credit Ratio. And they actually, the lender actually uses the rental income from the property to qualify for the loan on the property. So it's a wonderful product for an investor who has a long-term rental property. Now, I just closed on one of these DSCR loans. The beautiful thing is I can sit it out there. It doesn't touch my personal name. It's in the name of my entity. So it doesn't show up on my personal credit. Although they did look at my credit score to qualify for the loan, They didn't look at any of my income or any of that to do it. They simply did the rental survey, considered the lease rate on the property, and moved the loan based on the rental income. So the debt service credit ratio, or DSCR loan, is fantastic for income-producing property. It's a great product.
1: Great. And Frank, if you have anything to add to that, it'd be great. And also uh, to explain what DTI is, the debt-to-income ratio.
0: Yeah, nothing to add to that. Basically, the DTI is debt to income ratio. Basically, uh, they take what you owe uh, uh, versus uh, what you make. And that ratio has to stay in in a certain area. I mean, it can be anywhere from, depending on the lender, 40 to 50%. um, But if you have a lot of bills and uh, you're trying to qualify for a mortgage, it's best to get those paid down to improve your DTI.
1: All right. Awesome. Louise is wondering if alternative loans interest could be tax deductible. Frank?
0: I guess I'd have to look at what she means by an, uh, an alternative loan. Tori, do you have a handle on that?
2: I'll give you the answer that my accountant and attorney have given me many times on that. Any expense that's reasonable and necessary to operate a business is deductible against that business. Yeah. So if you have an alternative loan and in the interest rate, if it's tied against a property and that it's an income producing property, then yes, that interest would be tax deductible. So it's, uh, you just think about it as a business expense and think of that answer that my accountant always asked. And if it is a reasonable and necessary expense, then it's deductible.
1: Oh, that's Awesome. Uh, Okay, this is a question from Natasha back on the HELOCs again. Do you recommend taking the full 80% loan to value offer on a HELOC or a lesser amount? Also, do you recommend rate shopping and applying at more than one bank for comparison? Okay, I'll kind of answer this one and then I'm going to toss it to you guys as well. So I would, as a HELOC, take the maximum that you can get because as we talked about before, you only pay interest on it if you use it. And if we are in a um, an environment here where potentially the values of homes might dip a bit, um, if you lock in that rate or that, that percentage sooner rather than later based on your current value, that's definitely going to help you. I do think it's good to shop banks, but do not apply at more than one bank. And um, here's the difference is, you know, your credit score, you can go in and give them your information, they can do calculations. But if you apply at multiple banks, they're going to pull your credit and it's going to it's you're you're going to get dinged on your credit score unnecessarily. So I know that banks want to get that application. They want to run your credit. But you just have to say, I'm shopping. Here's my situation. Here's my credit score. Here's my income. Um, what based on this, what would my rate be? And what would the terms be on that loan? And do not authorize them to pull a credit until you choose the bank or the product that you want to go with. Guys, anything more to add to that?
0: Nothing. No, nope. Nope. you nailed it, Karen.
1: <laughs> Thanks, guys. Alright, this is a question from David Lee. David is such a friend of ours and a coaching client as well. Uh, he's wondering if, if the class A or A class homes, which would be more of the luxury homes, are going to have the biggest price drops. Billy taught him to buy C class, uh, C class cash flowing homes. So do you think that C-class will also drop? And if so, by how much? So, boy, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on this. Troy, let's start with you on this one.
2: Well, a higher-priced home that loses 20% would see a bigger value than a lower-priced home that loses 20%. So if the market in general loses 20%, you're going to notice that biggest price difference on the luxury or the A-class homes. Are they going to be an opportunity? I believe they are absolutely going to be an opportunity. As those values come down, they are going to recover. And because they have a bigger bump in price with the same move in percent, then you have a a bigger potential for gain. So
0: again, know your market, know your local area, right, Frank? Yeah, it's local. And uh, that's the thing I was going to say. I mean, we've got a couple of local areas, Cherry Hills and also Washington Park, where not going to drop they didn't drop even during the mid 2000s so you have to watch that and here's the thing that the gap between a c class and an a class is starting to uh, get a little closer so c class is good though because i think it's about as dependable as you can get And yeah if they drop a little bit well if you're going to rehab them, you got to be really careful but if you're going to rent them the rents aren't going to go anywhere Uh, they might even increase
1: wow that's great guys All right. Um, Yvette, this is an interesting scenario, was offered a deal on a new build in Alabama with a builder financing for two years at 2.99%. And they're predicting an 8% appreciation over the next two years. She says, how do I evaluate this deal? Frank, let's start with you.
0: Well, first of all, I'd want to know what the price of the property is. I'd want to check out my making sure that 8% is gonna be, um, you know, sustainable. Um, I'd like to see what the new rate's gonna be uh, after the 2.99, and based on all that, see what my mortgage is gonna be, and, and, and again, what are you gonna do with it? Are you gonna rent it out? Are you gonna buy it and just live in it? Are you gonna try and just resell it? There's a lot of stuff there we'd have to answer. Troy?
2: I, I would agree with that. If you're going to rent it, you need to know what kind of income it can generate. So there's a little bit of analysis on that. You can just look at purchase price versus rental rate and decide if it's going to cash flow. It could be that simple. I would add one more thing, and and uh Billy was alluding to this in the webinar last night was uh we are pretty much at the top of a cycle. We're expecting some economic uh, should I say, waves over the next couple of years, as he was talking about. So if it if somebody's telling you a property is going to appreciate it 8%, I would not bank on that appreciation. I would take it as a bonus if it happens, but I would just bank on the numbers as they are today. And can I cash flow it today? And if so, if it makes sense, then why not do a deal like that?
1: Oh, that's great, you guys. Wow, this has been awesome. We're actually out of time. Um Wow. And uh, I think we should probably do this again soon um, because we've got some webinars coming up, free webinars. If you missed the one that we did with Billy, you can go watch it on the YouTube channel. And we've also got additional free webinars that are scheduled leading up to our October real estate conference. So you can go to wealthbuilders.org forward slash events and get registered for those to keep up to date on the market. Um, But really, get registered for the real estate workshop, go to that same URL, wealthbuilders.org forward slash events, and use the code WB200, and you can attend in person or on live stream for $200 off. And then, guys, um, we just rolled something out, and it is called the Wealth Builders Real Estate Investing 101 Masterclass. And um, I was on Lance's podcast a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this and Lance is like, Hey, you know what? Get the, um, get the masterclass and watch that as much as possible before you go to the October real estate workshop so that you get a base of knowledge. Because when you get to the workshop, I know Dave and I were like this, we had to hear things like five times sometimes just to get it. So if you get in that masterclass and then you hear stuff in the workshop, it's going to click with you faster. So we put together a really great deal for you on that. Um, and it is, uh, first of all, I'll give you the website. Go to wealthbuilders.org forward slash masterclass. Okay, wealthbuilders.org forward slash masterclass. And we're offering it for a period of time here for just $495. It's um, 10 courses, over eight hours of teaching. You get some PowerPoints and things like that with it. And it's an online. It's really nicely done, uh, easy to go through. But when you do that for 497, you actually get a free live stream ticket. But listen to this: for 697, you not only get the real estate master class, but you get an in-person ticket, which the normal price for that ticket is actually 697. Okay, so it's sort of like you get a the live in-person ticket for free. Um, so, I don't want to load you up with too many options here, but I just want to repeat it. Uh, the masterclass, you go to wealthbuilders.org forward slash masterclass. If you got, get the 497 you get a free live stream ticket for the um, real estate event. 697 you not only get that masterclass, but you also get an in person ticket. So we would love to see all of you at the event. This is the time that we have to really get prepared and educated so that we can take advantage of this opportunity in the market that is just ahead. So I just want to give you, Troy and Frank, an opportunity for a final comment here before we sign off. Troy?
2: Thanks, everybody, for joining. Really hope you're blessed with this information. And I would encourage you to join us at the workshop that's coming up so that you can really get immersed in all that's going on with our market
0: and with the opportunity that we've got right now. We hope to see you there.
1: Awesome. Frank?
0: Thank you, guys, for uh, listening today. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know what? I'm going to kind of wait till the market changes. But If you wait till the market changes, you're not going to have the education that you need to be able to, uh, you know, to to pursue it. And so you're going to be behind and you're going to definitely have a a competitive disadvantage. So we'd love to see you at that uh, workshop.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. And thanks all of you, our Wealth Builders family, for tuning in to this Wealth Builders podcast. We love and appreciate you. Make it a great rest of the day.
0: Thanks for listening to the Wealth Builders Podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review the show. You want to learn more about who we are? Visit our website at wealthbuilders.org and check us out on Facebook. We'll see you next time.